the Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Oh, it's always a pleasure to be with you, Tom. You know that. Yay, Tom! I love it in Flint! You're very astute, Tom. Not an easy question. I'll debate Andy Dillon on your show. Well, uh, that's a very good question. Uh, Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm all right, Tom. How are you? Lucky team. <laughs> Ciao, Tom. How are you today? That's a good question. <laughs> Hi, this is actor, comedian Jonah Pody, and you're listening to the Tom Snyder, uh, Tom Smothers. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry. What's his name? Oh, Sumner. The Tom Sumner Program. Good morning, Tom. How are you doing? Hey, at least I got the Tom part right. The Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. This is Mayor Sheldon Neely, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Show. Hey, welcome back, everybody, as we roll into the third half of our three-hour tour known as the Tom Sumner Program. I'm going to shift gears once again and talk to a best-selling investigative reporter and historian, the author of nine books. Uh, and uh, her newest book is... Um, the uh, let me see make sure I get the title exactly right here the colony faith and blood in a promised land which just came out last month her name is Sally Denton she joins me by phone good morning Sally welcome to the show well I don't know if we have Sally uh, with us or not I can't hear perhaps we have to reconnect Welcome to live radio, folks. Um, I'll tell you a little bit about the uh, about the story here that we're going to get into as soon as I get connected with uh, with Sally. Um, this happens once in a while where they can hear me and I can't hear them. Tone, please record your message. When you've finished recording, you may hang up or press one for more options. <laughs> Well, I guess I'll uh, leave a message and ask uh, for um, the handler or for Sally to uh, call back to the Tom Sumner program. We'll just we'll just do it that way, and uh, I'll disconnect and see what happens. Um, in any event, the um, This is uh, an investigation into the 2019 killings of nine Mormons in northern Mexico, which drew international attention. It offers a, uh, the book, The Colony, Faith and Blood in the Promised Land, offer a glimpse into the strange, little understood world of a, fun a fundamentalist Mormon outpost. And we're going to find out, uh, hopefully from, from Sally, what that's... Uh, what that's all about um it's getting uh, rave reviews and uh i was hoping we'd get a chance to talk with sally maybe they'll maybe they'll call me back here in a moment or so um in the meantime let's uh look around and see if we can find some appropriate music to uh well, I'll tell you what, let's, I have something that's uh, fairly convenient. Yeah, let's, uh, tell you what, let's do this. 
Oh, there's the phone. Tom Sumner program. Tom Sumner program. Hello, Sally? Y yes. Hi, Sally. This is Tom from the Tom Sumner program. We're finally connected. Hi. Yeah. Hi, Tom. Sorry about that. It was some confusion. Oh, welcome to live radio. Thank you. <laughs> Where are you? <laughs> um, well, it, um, I'm, I'm actually based in Flint, Michigan, although with all the technical difficulties, it might seem like I'm located on the space station. But uh, <laughs> let's, uh, let's go ahead and get into this. Um, I, was, I was just okay. saying while I was uh, sort of filling the time while we got the, the tech stuff worked out and got connected, um, talking about your book, The Colony, Faith and Blood in a Promised Land. Um, now you are, by profession, a um, an investigative journalist, and and have been for many years. You've written nine plus books. But what? How did this story end up on your desk? Well, um, when it happened, actually, you're right. This is my ninth book, and um, I've written. I've been writing books and been a journalist for about thirty years, and. This one, this story um, actually is is kind of fits right into uh, the the work that I've been doing um, in a lot of different books. I've written a lot about organized crime and drug trafficking. Um, I've written a lot about um, uh, criminal uh, inter criminal organizations, and and I've written two books, actually three. I mean, I've written. Two books about um, Mormon Mormonism. Um, one about a massacre, the Mountain Meadows massacre that happened in 1857, and um, where uh, basically a, wa a, a wagon train from Arkansas was ambushed in in southern Utah um, by a group of um, Mormons who were dressed up as Paiute Indians and and slaughtered. It was the the largest. Um, uh, European on European settler um, slaughter in the history of the United States, and and up until uh, the Oklahoma City bombing, it was the the single largest massacre in the history of the United States. And then I wrote a book um, called Faith and Betrayal about my great great grandmother who brought the first was converted to Mormonism in England in the 1840s and brought uh, the first piano into the Intermountain West by wagon train and. And that's all based on her um, letters, and she gets to Utah, and it becomes this uh, discouraged, and um, uh, ends up leaving the Mormon Church, and so then and, and it's all based on her diaries about uh, what was going on in, in in Utah in the 19th century. So, and then I've written about um, uh, a lot about the uh, Mormon Church in a book called The Money and the Power. Uh, the rise of Las Vegas and its hold on America, uh, really about the the early money coming into Las Vegas, Nevada, and the and the gaming industry from uh, from the church in Salt Lake. So this is really kind of um, you know not a not a departure from me at all. When I first heard about the um, the book starts with an ambush of a caravan of women and children who were brutally attra attacked while 
traveling through northern Mexico just a couple of years ago, November uh, 2019, almost three years ago, and the victims were members of two fundamentalist Mormon communities in Mexico that uh, had dated back to um, one of them to the 19th century and one to the early 20th century. So, and these were unarmed women and children, and basically uh, three women and um, uh, six children were uh, executed, um, assassinated, really point blank, by as many as a hundred gunmen. And one of the women, the women were all, you know, young mothers, and one of the women and four of her children, <coughs> excuse me, were burned alive in in her vehicle. So it was such a heinous act, and and because of the fundamentalist Mormon tie and uh, to polygamy which was another subject that had interested me and I had written extensively about, um, I just turned my attention to it and thought from the beginning, I just wondered, you know, there seemed to be one question. It was all over the news and, and there were reporters from all over the world covering the ambush itself, but not much follow-up um, in the years to come. And my first question is, you know, was and remained at the end of the book. I mean, the question I tried to answer was why were these women traveling alone, unescorted, unarmed, um, on this road, one of the most dangerous uh, roads in the world, a central uh, trafficking uh, transportation route into the United States from Mexico for illegal narcotics. And and did you get any sense for, for why they were? Were they headed somewhere in particular or looking for a place to settle? Oh, no, they lived there. They've been living there for generations. They were very deeply settled in the area. Okay. The, the families have large pecan farms that are uh, very valuable. They they live in stark contrast to to more um, uh, poverty-ridden uh, neighbors, so their their wealth was always, always stood out to their uh, Mexican neighbors. But, no, they had been settlers... The LeBaron family, which I write about, it's Colonia LeBaron. The book is called The Colony, but it's about the LeBaron colony, and it was founded in 1890. So this, these families go back generations, and they've been living down there, and they traveled uh, this road. The first car um, was going with four of her children, uh, leaving La Mora, the community in Sonora, and going north up the road. She was going to meet her husband in Phoenix. The other two cars were going up the Sierra Madre up the road, crossing into Chihuahua, the state of Chihuahua, and um, south to Colonia LeBaron, where um, everybody had deep um, religious and, and uh, familial ties, and they were all going to a wedding. So it was, um, it was planned. They had been warned that there was going to be violence on the road, uh, but they didn't heed the warning, which was a mystery, and... Um, and none of the men, I kept, you know, wondering where were the men, where were the husbands, um, and who, you know, why were these wives and mothers and innocent children traveling this road by themselves? How, um, yeah, that, that, that is a tremendous mystery. Um, if, if they knew there was going to be violence, why weren't special arrangements made to transport from one place to another? Right, and the the men the uh, uh, the men from these colonies are you know they've been living among these cartels for their their communities down there predate the cartels, 
So, uh, you know, the rise of El Chapo and the Sinaloa cartel, you know, dates back to the 80s. And, and they've been, as I said, some of them have been, some of the uh, colonies have been down there since the 1800s and the others since the 1920s and 1940s. So they've lived among, the Mormons have lived among the, uh, uh, the drug traffickers for many, many, many decades. And so what happened to trigger this? The families agreed that they had a gentleman's agreement with the cartels for, for many years. So what was it that um, basically what, what my book does is go into um, what, were the, what were the possible motives for this killing? It was brutal. It was not a ma- you know, it was not, they weren't caught in the crossfire. It wasn't a case of mistaken identity. They were targeted. It was clear to the communities from the beginning that they were targeted. It was in the middle of the late morning, and um, uh, the women and children got one of them. The women got out of the car and raised her hands, put her baby in the back in the infant seat in the back seat of her suburban, and they shot her point blank in the heart. And and some of the killers um, videotaped the murders, so they clearly they knew who the, who these women were. And so I started it, you know, from the beginning as a, as a mystery, you know, why were they targeted? And that's what the book goes into and becomes um, actually, you know, more of a mystery about uh, who had the motivation to murder these women and children. And it turned out a lot of different people and factions did. Uh, but this is 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 not a novel or a historical novel. It's it's a factual no, telling is, of the events. Yeah, this is a true story. This is history, and uh, narrative nonfiction, or or I think it might be in the category of true crime. But um, what what happened? The deeper I got into it, and I was able to establish sources deep within the community of some of the women themselves, the polygamous. What a uh, what a polygamous community and in the 21st century looks like and uh, what it feels like to the women and children when often their husbands are working um, are working in in construction and uh, large American companies in the United States and the women are basically left to uh, hold down the fort in these um, uh, on these they're basically agricultural empires the the, and and uh, among the problems is um, there's great friction between the indigenous neighbors of the Mormons who have accused them of of uh, building and and uh, well appropriating water from the uh, you know the water the aquifers that are are supposed to feed all of the communities and their agriculture. Sally. So that was a um, Sally, I hate to interrupt. Yep. I have to stop you there. I have a uh, break coming up, but this is such a fascinating story. Can you stick around for a few minutes so we can talk some more? Absolutely. My guest is investigative journalist, historian, and author Sally Denton. The book is The Colony, Faith and Blood in a Promised Land by Sally Denton. And uh, we're going to let our broadcast partners squeeze a few words in or do whatever they do when we go to break. And um, they are WFOV 92.1 FM Flint. And uh, if you're streaming us at TomSumnerProgram.com, we have some messages as well. So don't touch that dial. Don't click that mouse. We'll be back with more of the Tom Sumner Program right after this. Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. 
I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is working to help keep you and your community safe from the threat of novel or new coronavirus. If you have traveled to a country with a widespread outbreak of COVID-19, CDC recommends you stay home and check your health for 14 days after returning to the United States. Take your temperature with a thermometer two times a day. Watch for symptoms like fever, cough, and trouble breathing. And if you feel sick or have symptoms, call ahead before you go to a doctor's office or emergency room. Tell the doctor about your recent travel and your symptoms and avoid contact with others. For more information, visit cdc.gov. Hey, this is Tom from the Tom Sumner Program. Catch me and a gaggle of great guests weekdays on Our Voices Radio, WFOVLP 92.1 FM. You never know who might drop by. Joe By from the Blue Hawaiians. Dan Serling. Congressman Dan Kildee. Alexander Zondrick. Actor, comedian Joe Napote. Woodrow Stanley. U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow. State Senator Jim Ananick. Comedian Brian McCree. The unknown comic. Mark Farner. And Tom, I want you to know Tom's my friend. You, you've always got great questions, and you know the material, and you, and you care about it, and it's, uh, it's that's impressive. Nice to be with you, Tom. And I admire you for reading all of that. I haven't read the whole thing. I've got willing to admit that. <laughs> hey, Tom, this is my favorite interview all It's like having coffee at the kitchen table with you. Tune in Monday through Friday from 9 to 12 right here on 92.1 of a Kind. And check out our website at TomSumnerProgram.com. Yo, speaking. Oh, dear. Honey, our car warranty is expiring again. So soon? It just expired last week. You don't even own a car! Not now, Dana. Your father's on the phone. Hey! Mom and Dad, you're being scammed! It's a robocall! Scammers are using new technology and clever tactics to make more and more calls that look legitimate, but are hard to trace. They can make it look like they're calling from any number, even from numbers of people you know. My robocall crackdown team is working with state and federal partners to stop the robocalls for good, but I need your guys' help. Don't trust your caller ID. Verify you're really talking to the person whose number appears when your phone rings. If you accidentally answer a robocall, hang up right away. Engaging in conversation will only lead to more calls. Use a call blocking app on your cell phone that stops robocalls before they interrupt your day. And if you do get a robocall, File a complaint with my office online at mi.gov slash robocalls. And mom, dad, please do not give your information out to these scammers over the phone. They're just trying to trick you. Well, at least they call. No, I get it. You're busy. But you know Janine's daughter is a doctor. She calls every week. A doctor. I'm Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel. Visit mi.gov slash agcomplaints for your connection to consumer protection.
Hello, this is State Senator Jim Ananick, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Hey, welcome back, everybody. We uh, continue our conversation with the author of The Colony, Faith and Blood in a Promised Land, Sally Denton, who joins me by phone. Sally, welcome back. Thanks for sticking around. Sorry to make you sit through all that. (laughs) Thank you. It's great to be here. Um. Just before the break, we were talking a little bit about um, the the event and and the fact that this is a factual telling of the of the event and that it's um, more true crime. Um, but with all of the attention this got, how difficult was it to collect the information? I mean, I know you're an investigative journalist, you know, by profession, and you've written a number of books and done lots and lots of research. But it seems like some of the the description, um, were there witnesses? I mean, you described, you know, a very specific act of a woman getting out of uh, an SUV or putting her baby in a car seat and being shot in the heart, that's a pretty specific event. Where did that kind of testimony come from if everybody in the caravan was slaughtered? Well, not everybody uh, <coughs> was. There were actually ah. 17. <coughs> Excuse okay. me. There were three, three women and 14 children, and uh, six children were uh, killed. And and the, the testimony about the, or the, the witnesses to the, a woman, Christina, getting out of her car. Uh, they were. She was seen doing that by the car that was coming up behind her, who was the next to be uh, shot up. And there were uh, several children in that vehicle. Two were killed in that vehicle with their mother. But there were several children that survived. And and they talked about um, after they had been. They saw their aunt Christina in the car in front get out with their hands up in the air and scream where women were children, where women with children were unarmed. And, um, and one of the, there were so many hit men, uh, that was one of the things that was so obvious from the start that this was, it was such overkill. These unarmed women, you know, they could have been slaughtered with probably a half dozen, uh, or less, um, Sicarios, uh, you know, hit men. And instead, there were uh, reports of almost a hundred. And as I said, some of the killings were videotaped by by um, killers that later um, turned states' evidence to the Mexican government. And um, but the children, the surviving children, had some of the most poignant and um, um, uh, detailed uh, testimony about what happened. And um, one of the cartel hitmen who. Uh, attacked the second, the third car, came down to check on, uh, to make sure that the woman was dead and, and apparently was surprised that she was traveling with, um, all the, ch- with nine children. And, um, so that set off apparently a war between, uh, rival factions who had come out expecting to, uh, uh, to do one job and, and were shocked that there were all these children. And um, so a lot of the testimony comes from that. Um, a lot of testimony comes from, uh, well, you were asking how I got, how I conducted the research. I was able to, um, I've got really good sources from, as I said, you know, covering uh, various aspects of, of uh, 
organized crime and drug trafficking stories for most of my professional life. And so I was able to get good sources inside the Mexican um, law enforcement as well as inside uh, the U.S. law enforcement, especially the DEA, familiar with the trafficking going on in that region and uh, intelligence and informants for the DEA. And I was also really fortunate to get access to uh, some of the women living in these colonies, many of whom um, are not there, uh, I, I don't want to say not there voluntarily because they've been born and raised there, but um, they don't have a lot of um, uh, agency to leave if they wanted to, especially if they're in polygamous marriages and they're, second, they're the second or third wives. Uh, because the polygamy in the United States in, in Mexico is illegal as it is in the United States, but this uh, this family, uh, these these groups have been got, uh, grandfathered in uh, since the 1800s, since the uh, you know late 19th century. And I think your audience, Tom, would be interested because one of the one of the founding colonies down there was uh, uh, the Romneys, where your former governor George Romney was born. So, um, and and those are, you know, these colonies that I'm writing about are breakaway colonies from the mainstream Mormons um, out of Salt Lake, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. These colonies are breakaway Mormon fundamentalists who practice polygamy, which the church abandoned in in the 1800s. And, and in fact, that's why, you know, with all true crime, with all mysteries, uh, my experience is you need to go back to the beginning and recreate uh, from the start what happened. So my book is far more laden with um, the history of Mormonism and the history of Mormon polygamy. And these colonies basically were begun by Mormon polygamists in the 1800s after the church um, abandoned the principle of polygamy, polygamy, which had been you know, deeply rooted within the faith. And uh, and it was an expedience with the the, the then Wilford Woodruff, the then president of the Mormon Church, um, in exchange for getting American statehood, uh, had to abandon the uh, officially abandon uh, the practice of polygamy. So the practicing polygamists from the 1800s went down to Mexico to avoid prosecution in the United States, and they saw themselves as the true believers of the true Mormon Church. So they didn't see themselves as breakaways or offshoots as much as, you know, maintaining the the pure faith. When um, It's a when fascinating story. It is a fascinating story, and it has a lot, of, uh, a lot of different parts to it. Were you able to interview any of the survivors from the caravan um, and, and or... Uh, some of the some of the people uh, that were part of the cartel that that turned state's evidence uh, that were involved as as shooters potentially. I did not interview any of the children, and I kind of stayed away from that. They were so um, uh, roundly quoted and on television, and you know, and and quoted throughout the world that that was a part of the story that. Um, was kind of uh, the easiest because they were the family members, the fathers, um, the father of uh, one of the victims, uh, uh, Adrian LeBaron, went to, you know, became very publicly uh, vocal about 
the the cartel and they filed a lawsuit against um you know the Juarez cartel blaming them um and uh so there's a you know a uh even though most of the uh you know the information and evidence that I uncovered did not include the Juarez cartel's involvement uh in the massacre but so there was there was so much I kind of left that story I I you know there was plenty of that to quote from from you know Reuters and the Washington Post and the Mexican newspapers and you know that was kind of ubiquitous so what I tried to do was go deeper inside and speak with people that um not as much about the massacre itself although that's where I relied on on law enforcement informants that were uh down there at the time but really speaking to um some of the the women that live in the colonies and what what life is like uh there and uh and where the men were and why we're you know coming back full circle to what I mentioned at the start my main question is why were they traveling alone most of these um the patriarchal leaders of these colonies traditionally and I mean routinely uh travel with an armed escort for them so why didn't they arm their you know or, or provide an escort for their for their wives and children and and on the other side of the road we have these shooters and and questions about why were there so many what made them attack this uh this small group and if if nine were killed but there were 17 traveling what made this group start attacking them and what made them stop um well i know that they stopped when they saw additional children as i said there, there's a lot of testimony that the the shooters that had been called out and hired to come to this massacre which is what it was uh were told one story about you know who they were going to be killing and they killed they clearly were targeting these three women but there was a lot of testimony um that the the shooters themselves did not you know they didn't expect to go to this main you know this huge massacre and slaughter young children and some refused to do it but what was clear to me from the beginning as you said why so many shooters why uh you know it didn't take that many if they just wanted to knock out these three women and uh so it was clear from the start to the Mexican military the Mexican intelligence Mexican law enforcement American law enforcement the FBI uh the DEA it was clear that somebody was sending a loud message and uh it, it was it was overkill the message was meant for somebody which i conclude is for the the male family members and um so then i started looking at well what is you know one of the one of the fathers said with kind of you know understatement well clearly somebody has a bone to pick with uh with the lebarons we just don't know what it is so that's when i started looking at where were the conflicts and clashes between the lebarons and uh the people that they're doing business with and living among in in uh colonia lebaron and that's where i came across the you know there's a great um water war going on down there right now especially with um uh as the the water supply is dwindling and uh with with climate change and there's only so much water to go around for these massive industries that are at odds with each other not just the cartels 
you know, who are uh, uh, trafficking and 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 growing uh, marijuana and poppies and and transporting the the drugs, but the methamphetamine and fentanyl, uh, you know, everything needs water. And as I said, the LeBarons have huge, massive pecan and walnut farms. They're one of the largest suppliers of of pecans in the world. And each tree, they have uh, thousands and thousands of trees, which take an enormous amount of water, which is uh, dwindling the the, uh, water table for the neighboring uh, less... uh, um, affluent neighbors who are doing subsistence farming and then you've also got you know the basically the avocado cartels the the, you know the people that are uh, growing and transporting avocados into the united states which is also um, in need of a lot of water and those are said to be controlled by other cartels at the moment and and there's limes there's there's a lot of uh there's a lot of billion dollar industry all competing for a very um, uh, small, uh, well, not small, but but uh, diminishing water supply, and there were frequent clashes between the family, between Colonial LeBaron and their neighbors. It seems like it must have been some kind of a message, um, because wouldn't the cartels? have pretty good intelligence wouldn't they know exactly who was traveling who down was that traveling road and that when road. absolutely yeah and i take that conclusion um if a lot of it from my own analysis based on you know watching mob i mean writing about the mob in vegas and organized crime hits on people you know they you go after the family first generally you know you're sending a message and and what I heard over and over is that they had been warned and they didn't heed the message. And um, they had been warned repeatedly in recent days uh, that there... Now, uh, there was, I haven't mentioned this, but you know there was, in fact, a lot of chaos and um, upheaval happening in the region because El Chapo Guzman, um, Joaquin Guzman had just been... Um, incarcerated in the United States, and he had been dominating that. The, the he controlled that region for the past three decades, so that had sent everything into uh, his his children. The Chapidos are fighting for control, and and uh, uh, the Sinaloa, his Sinaloa cartel was, which is reign supreme for uh, generations, was. Uh, suddenly being challenged by smaller cartels. So there was definitely violence in the area that um, had been, you know, prompted. His, his incarceration was in the summer, you know, it was just a couple of months before this happened. So there were a lot of competing um, cartels trying to uh, seize control of a region where these Mormon families had lived relatively peacefully for the last uh, decades. Well, this was only, this event, um, this massacre was only four or five months ahead of what we think of in the U.S. as the the beginning of the pandemic. Um, Is it entirely possible that the pandemic sidelined what might have, uh, that this event might have been a prelude to an attack on the LeBaron community that got sidelined by the pandemic? 
Well, that's possible. I hadn't really thought about that, Tom, but that's very possible. I know that, um, you know, I came across a lot of, uh, uh, well, first of all, I want to say this is not, I didn't come across any evidence that this was um, instigated out of any prejudice against Mormons, but it was certainly instigated out of um, uh, a hatred for this particular colony. And, um, and also, uh, um, as the book details, you know, early on, former President Trump wanted to use it as a reason to in, invade Mexico to designate the cartels as terrorists and take um, military action. So there were a lot of forces at play that got uh, truncated by the, by the pandemic, as you point out. It just seems that the, the timing is... is interesting in that in that respect that that the warning that that they were sending was hey we're coming and then the pandemic and ah did you yeah well and the family certainly felt like uh that you know adrian lebaron ronita one of the women uh killed uh adrian lebaron her father said but from the beginning we're being persecuted now persecuted is a is a term uh, thick with um, uh, knowledge and, and uh, reference to early American Mormonism. And um, so they clearly, you know, they, they are the ones that put forward from the beginning, the family, that were targeted and were targeted for some reason and they're coming after this. And they use the opportunity to try and uh, become like a sovereign uh, uh, state within the state of Chihuahua and they used it to try and generate more um, ability to obtain weapons. And um, so there was, um, I, you're right. I mean, it's, it's really interesting to me, the pandemic, because I started this research and, and signed my book contract uh, right after it happened. And by the time I was getting ready to try and travel, the pandemic hit. So that definitely did... Um, uh, stop a lot of uh, uh, investigation that probably would have been continuing that I I didn't really give it that thought. I wonder also. Um, I'm I'm curious if you came across any firsthand knowledge or or um, any knowledge at all about how the LeBaron community and or the Sinaloa drug cartel would have acted and responded to the pandemic and during the pandemic. How the, how the Sinaloa cartel would have responded? Yeah. I mean, would these guys have been terrorizing the countryside wearing face masks? Well, uh not only that, but would they, you know, the, the question is, um, would they really just sit back and let a, a rival cartel come in with 100 shooters and, and bring heat to the area? And uh, Oh, it, you know, was, it some... wasn't that, the, the attack wasn't by the Sinaloa drug cartel. Um, no, well, I, it was kind of unclear because there were a lot of... Con- there were a lot of conflicting um, reports about the Sicarios working in uh, collusion with each other, that it wasn't just one band, but they were, uh, they knew the victims, 
Um, that was clear from the from the testimony. They called them by name. They were familiar with them. So they had um, these were people that the the colony the the uh, families uh, knew from checkpoints and you know had associated with. I mean, one of the family members said you know they sold pomegranates to them. They brought their cars to them. The cartel people brought their cars to them to be repaired. I mean, they lived among them for generation, for you know, decades, as I said. So this wasn't just kind of out of the blue. Out of the blue, there's a bunch of, um, uh, you know, new hitmen. I mean, apparently there were hitmen that nobody recognized. There were said to be um, uh, people that were Chinese, which were you know completely unrecognizable in the region, and. Um, so it was, uh, uh, I mean, the, regardless of how it happened or who was responsible, uh, there was a lot of collusion among uh, different uh, cartel factors uh, because it was, uh, it was, as I said, it was wide open and broad daylight and, um, and uh, you know, as, uh, as brazen as it gets. Well, Sally, this is a, a fascinating story, and unfortunately, we're down to the last couple of minutes here, but um, uh, I always like to give guests an opportunity to let listeners know where they can learn more about you and your work, past, present, and future. Do you have a website you'd like to share? I do. It's uh, www.sallydenton.com, and all of my books are on there, and Anybody who is a follower of my uh, uh, my writing would see that this is a com- you know this is not an, uh, a one off uh, uh, subject. This is very much tethered to uh, um, many of my other books, well, and of course the books available on Amazon and in bookstores and everywhere else. Well, it's it's kind of a law that you have to put your books on Amazon these days, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, Sally, it's well, been I really a, appreciate you having me. It's it's a fascinating conversation, and Sally, I appreciate you spending this time with me and the listeners this morning. And uh, keep up the good work. Thanks so much, Tom. I appreciate it. All Take right. care. Bye bye. That was uh, investigative journalist, historian, and author Sally Denton. The new book is The Colony, Faith and Blood in a Promised Land. And uh, it's um, a fascinating uh, account of um, an event that happened uh, in northern Mexico to some Mormon uh, women and children that were traveling... uh, on the morning of November 4th, 2019, and um, nine people and uh, were killed and five more injured in that event that got international attention and the attention of Sally Denton. In uh, and this book is a uh, a true a true crime accounting of that event and uh, information surrounding it. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be back with the final segment of today's edition of the Tom Sumner Program. I hope you'll uh, stick around and um, be with us.
Hey, <laughs> this is the Unknown Comic, and guess what? You're listening to the Tom Sumner Show right now, and now, and now too, and even now. It's 2022, and this year, the Tom Sumner Program begins its 15th year. It would not be here without support through the years from individuals and organizations like these. Seth David Radwell. East Village Magazine. Flint Institute of Music. Hello! I'm Maestro Ricky DeMeg. Flint Community School. MTA Flint. Flint Comics and Entertainment. Hamity Complete Food Center. The Flint River Watershed Coalition. W.H. Weiscarver. The Genesee County Road Commission. Long Museum Auto Fair. Thomas Appliance. The Genesee Health Plan, Flipflip Technology, My Community College, it's Pure Michigan. Friends on Facebook have also helped by contributing to the show's online fundraisers two or three times a year. If you would like to help the Tom Sumner program continue to thrive by becoming a sponsor, send an email of interest to Tom at TomSumnerProgram.com. Add your name to the list of supporters, past, present, and future. Right now, the COVID-19 vaccines are available to millions of Americans, and soon they will be available to everyone. This vaccine means hope. It will protect you and those you love from this dangerous and deadly disease. I want to go back to work and I want to be able to move around. To visit with Michelle's mom, the hugger and see her on her birthday. You know, I'm really looking forward to is going to opening day in Texas Ranger Stadium with a full stadium. We've lost enough people and we've suffered enough damage. In order to get rid of this pandemic, it's important for our fellow citizens to get vaccinated. I'm getting vaccinated because we want this pandemic to end as soon as possible. So we urge you to get vaccinated when it's available to you. So roll up your sleeve and do your part. This is our shot. Now it's up to you. Do you ever feel like you need an attitude adjustment? Are you wishing there was a magic pill or a new app for your mobile device? Why don't you try live local music? Music can make you dance, bring back fond memories, inspire you to be more creative, whether you attend a child's school concert or recital, go to a local symphony concert, Visit local bars and restaurants that feature dance music, sing-along piano, or jazz and blues. Music could be just what you're looking for. Supporting live local music is more than a way to support your local artists and economy. It's a great way to improve your own quality of life. Support live local music. This message is brought to you from the Tom It's Dana. Dana? Something must be wrong. She never calls. Dana? What's wrong? Take this down. She's stranded on the side of the road. I'm not. She needs us to send her an Amazon gift card. I don't. And she'll use it to pay the tow truck driver. I won't. Mom, Dad, that's not me. It's a scam. Scam artists will call, text, or email people trying to get them to buy a gift card from Amazon or some other company. And then ask for the gift card number over the phone. 
Remember, gift cards are for gifting, not for paying people. If someone asks for payment using a gift card from Amazon, Target, or some other store, it's a scam. Hang up or delete the message. These scammers are awful. Wish they'd pretend to be her brother sometimes. Be nice to hear from him. For more tips on avoiding scams, visit michigan.gov AG for your connection to consumer protection. I get the uneasy feeling Rod Serling is behind one of those doors. Rod Serling. Rod Serling. What's this, the Twilight Zone? Where is everybody? I would have been headed for the Twilight Zone. Twilight Zone. If I go any lower, I'll be in the Twilight Zone. All right. Oh, but Jethro's right at home in the Twilight Zone. <laughs> I'm in the Twilight Zone. Now, having made this little jaunt into the Twilight Zone, I got a feeling something strange is about to happen. Hi, this is Ann Serling, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Boil that cabbage down, boys. Turn that whole cake around. The only song we sing. Wah, wah, wah. <laughs> what was that? It was a little jazz. <laughs> Very little jazz. Just wanted to make the point that I've got right. soul. You know. you got what? Soul. That's soul? That is soul. Oh. How nice. Filet of soul. <laughs> boil that cabbage down, boys. Turn that old cake brown. Only song I ever did sing is boil that cabbage down. Boil that cabbage down, boy. Turn that old cake round. The only song I ever did sing is Boil that cabbage down. Take it, Tom. No. I, s- I said no, I didn't no. want to take it. No, sometimes you're not supposed to sing that. Well, sometimes a fellow doesn't feel like taking it. He just stands right up and says no. I didn't want to. I didn't Tommy. know it upset you this much. I just don't well, want to take it. I did to the song. No. Too bad you caught me on an off night like that. I just don't want to take it Tommy, when a fella stands up and says... always take it. I just, I... You know that? You haven't even read the Folk Singers Guidebook. You, oh, you haven't even read the Folk Singers Credo. You, you don't know what it is to be a folk singer. Oh, You're a big phony. You? Oh, yeah? Yeah. Tell me, have you read the Folk Singers Credo? Yeah, well, Are you a folk singer? Yes, I are. Okay. Then you've read the guidebook, right? And you've read the Credo. Remember when you got your guitar, came with a book? Came with a book and an Arthur Godfrey chord changer. Yeah, I read Mom read it to me. Yeah, okay. What does the folk credo say? It says, all folk singers are obligated to do what? Dickie, I didn't know. Obligated to do what? I I, I don't remember what it it said there. Say the whole credo. Come on. All folk singers are obligated to take it. That's right. He said to take it. If you feel like it. If you no, don't feel like it. No, it doesn't say if you feel like it. It says all folk singers are obligated to take it without hesitation, without thinking. They're to take it like a reflex. You take it, Tom. Boom, boom, boom. Yeah, well, so when know, I say take it, I want to see you hop to it all the time, every time. Dickie the dictator. Boil that cabbage down. Take it, Tom. Boom, 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 all the time. <laughs> Hundreds of years ago, the railroad started in America. 
rugged men of yesteryear went out in the vast wilderness of early America with a great dream in their minds and vision in their eyes and big nine-pound hammers clasping their hands. These were men of yesteryear building a vast railroad, a vast spiderweb of steel rails spanning across the width and breadth of the country, toiling and inching their way under the, under the lucky old sun. <laughs> They inched and toiled their way across the vast bosom of America. I'll <laughs> throw a little sex in the show. All right, all right. But this wasn't just a fun job. You're a real garbage mouth, you know that? You're talking about history, remember? Well, there was... There, these railroad men, it wasn't fun. They faced dangers. These men of yesterday, where they went, there lurked dangers. Some of the railroad men, they'd be working in the mountains. And in the mountains, there's a lot of, lot of dangers lurking in the mountains. These railroad men sometimes would stop at, like at night when they were resting. Sometimes there's more, the nervous, some of the nervous railroad men, they'd jump out of bed in the middle of the night. They'd say, hey, I saw a danger lurk. <laughs> What kind of dangers? There was dangers lurking in the mountains and they had to build the railroads across raging deserts and blazing rivers and across the plains of America and there lurked dangers. Tommy, raging deserts and blazing rivers? They were tough, man, to get across those. Yeah, I think so. And these railroad men, to make it even worse, they, they were fearless men. They had to build railroads. Wait till you hear this. They had to build railroads across crevices. Deep crevices in the ground, and these railmen had to span these crevices with big railroad pretzels. And in the bottom of these crevices, oftentimes in the bottom of these crevices, there lurked pumas. Vicious pu that's right, pumas with claws and that's foam wrong. coming out of these there pumas' any. mouths. Tommy, that's wrong. And there, they have there bad breath, too. There weren't any pumas down there. There was the pumas, and oh, these railmen, they'd say, Wow, look at those pumas down Stop there in the crevice. There weren't any pumas. Hey, I don't want to build a railroad across this crevice. I don't care what you say. There's pumas in them. Tommy, for crying out loud, there were no pumas in the there, crevices. There, there wasn't was, even one puma in one crevice. There, there was, there there was, was not. <laughs> there was three pumas in the crevice. <laughs> Mama puma and Papa puma and baby. baby puma. <laughs> Who's been sleeping in my crevice? <laughs> Do you want me to tell you why there were no pumas in the crevices? There was pumas. You want me to tell you why? There, the reason there weren't any, we don't have any pumas in this country. The, you see? There are no pumas in America. We, we accept everybody in America, Dickie. That's right, we do. But do you want to keep your story truthful? Yes, Historically I, correct? Yes, I do. And get rid of the pumas right now. I'm not going down that crevice. Well, there was these vicious beasts in these crevices. And these railroad men were sore afraid. And these railroad men come up to these crevices, they say, Wow, look at those vicious beasts in the crevices! <laughs> sure smell like pumas. Hey, put that out. But they weren't. But they weren't. And these railroad men were sore afraid. Yet the railroads were completed. Yes, Americans. We can look back with pride on the historical archises of American history where these men of yesteryear completed this giant task, the Transcontinental Railroads. It took a Herculean effort on the part of these men, 
but the task was completed. And, and you're probably saying, you probably wonder, when since this song coming? Maybe. Well, a big feast transpired and a sole substance for this feast, for these ravenous railroad men of yesteryear in this big feast, the sole substance was hotcakes boiled in cabbage juice. Big giant uh, pancakes um, boiled in a pot of uh, cabbage juice for several hours. <laughs> then they'd eat it. <laughs> hotcakes and cabbage juice, those guys all think it's swell. But every time I eat the stuff, I always feel like bleh. Oh, boy, that cabbage down, boy, turn that old cake round. The only song I ever did sing is boil that cabbage down. Working on the railroad, working all day long. Take it. Well, well, well. When someone says take it, you're supposed to take it. I suppose you've read the folk singer Credo, you shut your mouth off about it enough, and then when I say take it, you didn't take it. When someone says take it, you're supposed I'm, to take I'm it. Are you a folk singer? I'm very sorry. Don't get belligerent. I, why didn't you take it? When someone I'm not says, trying to get belligerent because you are absolutely right. You stood Boy, up. that really makes me angry when a guy doesn't take it. That's right, and it makes me angry too. And I think anybody who doesn't take it should be severely chastised, Tommy. Because you were right. The way you said take it was in a true folk tradition. You stood up there on your own two feet and you said take it with authority. You knew what you were doing. You're a, a man who, who knows where he's going. That's the way you were. You said take it. And I didn't take it. I know that I didn't take it. I, I don't know what happened. I, I assumed, see, I assumed you were going to take it. Well, but you're supposed I to... know it. I'm supposed to take it. A folk singer should never assume anybody else is going to take it. And I should have, I should have known. I should have been alert. And I, and I wasn't. I, I guess my mind was just wandering. That's all. And I, I apologize for not taking it. Now, I assure you, I'll do my best to see that it, it never, ever happens again. Honestly. I'll let it go this time. Working on the railroad, working all day long, take it. Working, 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 working. Boil the cabbage down, boys, turn, turn, old cake round. The only song I ever did sing, boil the cabbage, boil the cabbage down, boys, turn that old cake round. The only song I ever did sing is boil that cabbage down. That wraps it up for today's edition of the Tom Sumner Program. Hope you enjoyed uh, the conversations with, uh, well, this third hour with Sally Denton, investigative journalist, and uh, MIT-trained physicist Tom Sheehan during the uh, second hour. And we started out this morning talking about unruly women with Falgany Sheth. Uh, t join us tomorrow for Armchair Politics. Mark Everson will be sitting in with a roundtable. We're going to start out the show with Flint Mayor Sheldon Neely, and uh, we're going to talk with uh, GOP gubernatorial candidate Tudor Dixon. So I hope you'll be with us. Good night, everybody. The Sumner Program is a live variety show. We want to acknowledge all of our guests who play such an important role in the show and our cavalcade of cohorts from coast to coast for their regular contributions. Most of the musical accompaniment was provided by people in or from the Flint area. 
Many of the pre-recorded portions of the Tom Sumner program are made possible by Flint's own Steve McComb and Pencil Sketch Recording in Nashville, Tennessee. If you have comments, questions or suggestions about the show, find us on Facebook. This is Prue Clearwater. Join us next time for another edition of the Tom Sumner Program. And thanks for listening.